0: We are starting a new series, and uh, uh, called uh, about uh, the Jewishness of Jesus, a Rabbi named Jesus. I'm not going to say any more about it because Christy Campos is leading us in this series, and uh, Christy is our pastoral apprentice. And part of that apprenticeship is doing a sermon series, and I think you're going to be blessed with what she is bringing today. So, will you guys welcome her? Thanks for yeah. All the clapping is a lot. You're excited today. I, good, I woke up excited too. Um, and then I was awake, which is hard. <laughs> um, so Joe already said part of my scripted intro, which is fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so he said my name already, spoiler, so good morning. <laughs> is this okay? I feel like it's like... Is it okay? Okay, because I can like hear myself saying words and breathing, and that always bothers me. Well, that's not what I meant. So we can hear you saying, words. saying words, but not breathing. Never mind. Okay. So good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, my friends. Um, yes, my name is Christy Campos. I um, come here with my husband. We were part of this church with our three children. I am in a seminary program with Fuller Theological Seminary, Master of Divinity program, and um, So that's what this is about. Uh, The Pastoral apprenticeship is part of that seminary program, and so I'm supposed to set goals, um, learn specific things. So I've been participating in staff things, you know, when attending finance meetings and board meetings, and then also we uh, decided, Joe suggested, and I said it sounds like a good idea to put together a sermon series. Right, And it's like, famous last words, great idea at the time. Because then I had to do it, and it's been still a great idea, no it is, it's still a great idea. It's just, um, it's a lot harder than I anticipated. And so, it's all right, we're doing all right. Um, So, one more thing that was really important to me to say though, before we get into the point of things, is that I really want to make sure that I've met each and every one of you. So I I recognize a lot of people that I haven't necessarily met. And so it's really important to me that we not just know who each other are, which is really easy for you to know who I am when I stand up here and my name is said, right? But it's really important to me that we know each other, um, especially as we're growing together as a church family through these transitions and things like that. So um, please, after the service, if we haven't actually locked eyes and maybe not hugged. I like hugs, but later when it's not sick time. Anyway, okay. We'll hug later. Um, All right, so I began all of this, this sermon series journey, with an idea that was inspired by all of you. So if you look at our website, we'll have some slides throughout, um, on our website's homepage, there's this statement about who this church is, right? And it says, if you've ever become discouraged, disheartened, disappointed, or disillusioned about church, then you're not alone. Many of us have too, which is why we're trying to do things differently. We are striving to be a church that studies the Bible while challenging many stereotypes and assumptions of American Christianity. We're a mix of post-evangelicals, post-Catholics, social activists, families, young adults, your everyday neighbors, honest, down-to-earth people, LGBTQ people, doctors, students, artists, musicians, and everyone in between. We are striving to love God by loving each other and this world. We believe Jesus makes room for everyone. And we believe church is more than a Sunday gathering, which is why we live our faith out in discipleship and justice. We are trying to make a real tangible difference in the lives of hard living people through community development. Here at Central City Church, we're trying to do church differently. Like I said, this is on the homepage. If you've never seen it, I encourage you to check it out. Um, While you're on the homepage, there's a menu up on the left. When you click on that, you get an option to learn about how our community is working towards justice in tangible ways. And if you've never explored the website in, in further detail, again, I really encourage you to. There's important statements there about inclusion and affirmation and what we believe this church's role is in the world. And it also identifies us as Jesus followers on the website too. Jesus followers. Adopting this way of referring to oneself is not a new thing for Christians because the word Christian has come to mean different things for different people, right, especially in this country. And I know that people of faith have been workshopping different names for a while. I first tested out follower of Jesus back in like 2005, you know, but I also found that it brought questions from people that I was maybe not prepared for. Questions like, what do you mean by that? Oh, what do I mean by that, you know, a good question. Um, And so a few months ago, also, a very good friend of mine who was not a a Christian, excuse me, messaged to ask me a question. Not a Christian, asked a question, hard to say. (laughs) So she said to me, you believe in social justice, in equity, in loving your neighbor. Those beliefs seem very antithetical to Christianity in today's America. May I ask you why you support a religion that has caused so much harm? Another good question. So why do we identify as Jesus followers? Is it because, as my friend summarized, the moniker of Christian carries specific baggage that we do not wish to be linked to? Or perhaps we've just become tired of this thing called Christianity, but still see value in drawing near to God especially as revealed in Jesus Christ. And it can feel like a pretty good solution then, right? I mean, to use the term Jesus follower, it helps to still clarify who we identify with, but also clarifies maybe who we do not identify with, you know? And I'm sure your mind is filling with examples of what that might look like, the type of Christianity that you don't really want to be identified with. So personally, I think I was always kind of hoping that referring to myself as a follower of Jesus would communicate like a subtext that I'm not just accepting the religion that I was maybe handed, but that I was making my own choice, right? I'm following with intention, right? So kind of like social media. We choose to follow on social media. We choose who we're gonna follow. We choose whose content is gonna fill our feeds and thereby take space in our lives and our minds. And I have chosen to follow Jesus and following isn't new, you know. I mean, social media, of course, right, that part's new, but as humans, we've sought out other people for the purpose of learning from them for as long as we've been learning. There's an old painting that I hope we can get the slide up for, this famous, just, it makes me laugh, this famous Renaissance-era painting that was done by Raphael, and it's what I always think of, I'm sure you've seen this, it's what I always think of when I think of teachers and students in ancient times, right, my mind fills with images of um, all of these, Uh, ancient learned folks, right? So this is Plato and Aristotle and like a whole host of other mathematicians and scientists and philosophers. And so in my mind, they would always like just wander around dusty streets muttering to each other or like walking under grand archways, you know, debating the way the universe works, which is like really silly, I know. Because of course they sat down to debate too (laughs) Ha ha, oh, I know. All right, so even what I'm doing now though, this pastoral apprenticeship, like the very word apprentice conjures up images for me of blacksmiths learning the craft of shoeing horses and pharmacists learning how to mix tinctures for the village apothecary, you know, apprentice. But we've always sought out others. That's the point, right? We've always sought out others and followed for the purpose of learning. Learning together in community is pretty intrinsic to who we are. And people have been following Jesus ever since he began his ministry, too. And you know, in the Gospels, Jesus is called rabbi. It is the Hebrew word for master or teacher, and it was the normal practice for a rabbi to have disciples who were committed to them, learning from them by listening to their sermons or spending their days in worship in the great temple complex or discussing the minutia of the law at a private residence. They were engaging in meaningful debates about God's word and how to live out their calling as the people of God. We'll talk more later about how a person came to be given the title of rabbi, uh, but the point here today is just to recognize that we've been drawn to this kind of unique way of referring to ourselves, Jesus followers. And I want to examine that a little bit by considering Jesus as rabbi. Now, we believe that Jesus was God incarnate, that God chose to enter the world clothed in humanity and that the person of Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah foretold by scriptures. Something that I want us to think about together over these next few weeks is that God chose to join us here, right, as a particular human during a particular era. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, was a Jewish man. Jesus was not a Christian he was Jewish, right? Born to a Jewish family and of a Jewish bloodline, lived early life as a Jewish male child, grew up to be a Jewish man, a man who would come to be called rabbi. Now, a modern rabbi named Evan Moffick wrote a book called What Every Christian Needs to Know About Judaism. And he says in there, that knowing more about Judaism brings Christians closer to Jesus because Jesus lived and died as a Jew and consistently quoted Jewish scripture and stories. When Christians learn about Jewish tradition and history, they see the Bible and the life of Jesus from a new and enriching perspective. And now when I read that, I kind of think, Well, of course, (laughs) because it makes sense that knowing the historical context for what we read will always be beneficial to our understanding. All of Jane Austen's books, just for instance, make a lot more sense and you can follow the story better and get more out of it when you know a little bit about the culture of the Regency period in Britain's history when her stories took place. But the challenge for us is that reading the New Testament isn't just reading. It's much more complicated than reading any other historical text because it is sacred. And that sense of the holiness of it all has unfortunately led to a fairly pervasive attitude that it cannot be treated as other texts are treated. I mean, you may have been raised kind of with this sort of approach to scripture that it is not ever to be doubted or questioned. And yet, Jesus did grow up questioning scripture. It is part of the culture to probe the texts. It shows reverence to dig in and ask hard questions, grappling with the meaning and pressing for further clarity. One author talked about it in terms of deep conversations with very good friends. Right? Think about it. We don't hesitate to ask our closest friends hard questions. And the Jewish people approached their relationship with the text in a similar manner. This reverential wrestling with the text that is normal within Jewish culture has also been called an act of worship. So knowing this small piece of background information helps us to make more sense of what we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel when he says a few times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In each example, he's quoting the Law of Moses, so Exodus, Deuteronomy, or Leviticus, and then putting his own rabbinic spin on it, which again, was common. Every rabbi was expected to have his own ideas about the texts, as much as we expect our own pastors these days, right? To preach their own thoughts in their sermons. So, we're getting involved. Let's look at the text together. I don't have a slide here, and I left mine there, so I'm gonna go get it. But I want you to grab a Bible from right in front of you, and hopefully there's one within reach. And we're going to open to Matthew 5, which in this pew Bible, as long as it looks the same, you'll find on 1501, I think I discovered earlier. Ooh, and I turned right to it. What? Okay. (laughs) But actually, then once you get there, 1501, Matthew 5, we're actually going to skip past the Beatitudes and Salt and Light. So I'm going to have you turn the page right? So I want you to be able to flip through the chapters a little bit here with me, and that's why we're doing this. So beginning in in chapter 5, we're going to actually look ahead, and there's little titles that help us to stay organized and see what we're doing here. But you'll see in verse 21, the heading is murder. Jesus says, you have heard it said, right? And then in verse 22, but I tell you, let your eyes look ahead. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, 28, but I tell you. The next heading, divorce, 31. Again, it has been said. 32, but I tell you. Again, under oaths, swearing oaths. Look ahead, verse 33. Again, he says, you have heard that it was said. Verse 34, but I tell you. The next section, an eye for an eye, revenge. Revenge, you have heard it said. 38, an eye for an eye, but I tell you. in 39, And finally, loving your enemies. The final section in chapter 5. Verse 43, you have heard it said. 44, but I tell you. Right? So all these easy things (laughs) that Jesus addresses here. Adultery, divorce, just the easy stuff, right? Okay. So, but you'll notice, as I said, as you peruse the chapter, right? Jesus has said six times in a row here, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And now without knowing the cultural context that we just reviewed, this wrestling with the text that was common and expected. It's easy to see, actually, how reading this section of the New Testament could look as though Jesus is standing in judgment of the scriptures. Do you see the difference? Behaving as an outsider, bringing correction. It could be easy to interpret this to mean that what has come before in the Hebrew scriptures, what we have in our Bible as the Old Testament, it could be easy to interpret this to mean that somehow that is obsolete or wrong or just no longer applicable. But turn back a page now. If you look back in the same sermon, before he says all that, he reminds everyone in verse 17, 17 and 18, Oops, sorry, don't turn back. This page turn's getting me. Top of 1502. The fulfillment of the law, he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish, not to abolish the law and the prophets, not to destroy. I do have a slide here for this one that's already up because this is the message. If you haven't heard of the message uh, version, it's like a paraphrase in kind of our contemporary language. And sometimes all it means for us is that it's just a little easier to grasp the point. Um, I like how the... The words work out sometimes, too. I think it's really a neat version. So you can read along in your hands for comparison if you want, or else we have it up here as well in the message version. And Jesus says this. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I am going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Hmm. Not to demolish, but to complete, and to pull it all together in a vast panorama that paints a beautiful image of the continuity of God's love, doesn't it? So recently, I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure of studying under a professor who was born and raised Jewish and then came to faith in Jesus as Messiah. Her name is Jennifer Rosner and she identifies as a Messianic Jew. So you may have heard of this community before. They maintain their Jewish rhythms and culture but worship Jesus as Messiah. Well, I was emailing with her about all of this, and I wanted to share a quote with you, what she said. She said that God's covenant with Israel doesn't fade into the background or become obsolete or insignificant when Jesus comes on the scene. Rather, it provides the necessary context for understanding the gospel, the kingdom of God, and where the whole story is heading. And Jesus said that too, right? Back there in verse 18. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. He does not wave off the law with a brush of his hand, but instead emphasizes its everlasting value. Now, unfortunately, our history has not always been viewed this way that the covenant God has with Jewish people is everlasting and that Jesus was in fact very Jewish. The narrative that began to take hold in the century that followed Jesus' resurrection as the early church was forming and spreading out into the world, the narrative was that the new church, now a people called Christians, were replacing the Jews as the chosen people. So remember, the first church was not made of Christians, but of Jews, for Jesus was Jewish and preached almost exclusively to Jewish people. The church began as a sect of Judaism, then expanded to include the Gentiles, as anyone who was not Jewish is called, right? But then by the second century, the people of Judaism and the people of Christianity had intentionally differentiated from one another, intentionally created distinction and space between the two and entirely parted ways. And what has happened over all of these centuries since then is that the Jewish roots of the Christian faith were diminished. The Jewish people were intentionally painted as the enemy. And the Jewishness of Jesus was downplayed, even neutralized. So an interesting example of the intentional softening of Jesus's Jewishness is found just a few pages over in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to turn there, chapter 9, verse 20 specifically. We're not going to read the whole story, but you can look um, if you want to. So it may be a familiar story to you. It's the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. She touched Jesus's garment as he was walking past, and she was healed. Now, in many English translations, it will say that she reached out to touch the hem or the edge of his robe or his cloak. The garment, however, was likely a special prayer shawl that all Jewish men wore, and a lot of them still do. And the edge of it was actually like special fringe or tassels, not a hem the way that we think of them, right? Everyone's got hems on their clothes. It was not that at all. Um, I do have a photo here. There you go. Um, so these, this is an example. These are the tassels here that would be attached to the bottom four corners of the garment, which again, was usually a prayer shawl. These special tassels are tied into 613 knots corresponding to the 613 commandments in God's law, the Torah. It was, and again, still is, worn by Jewish men as a reminder to obey God in all things. Right, all 613. So this photo of the tassels I grabbed from a website, like a modern website that's instructing people in how to tie their own knots. That's why there's such a variety there. Right? The way that you tie them doesn't really matter, it's the number that counts. And then the other photo is just from Etsy. <laughs> like that's, a, that's just an example of a modern prayer shawl with the tassels attached, you can see at the bottom, just to give us an idea of what like a modern Jewish man would wear. So, now hang with me here. The Gospels were originally written in Greek, and where it is said that the woman reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak, the Greek word kraspedon is used. But then, over in Matthew 23, 5, when Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for their flashy show of faith, calling them hypocrites, the exact same word is used, kraspedon. Right, to describe what they're wearing. And here, in many of our English Bibles, that word is translated as tassels. See the difference. Jesus has a hem. Pharisees, though, have tassels. And the impact of like this really small translation decision, again, to quote Professor Rosner, obscures Jesus' connection to Jewish practices and distances Jesus from the customs of the Pharisees. There isn't actually. That's the previous one. So there's no slide for this one. It's OK. It's a lot of slides. <laughs> so I'm going to read that again. The impact of this small translation decision obscures Jesus' connection to Jewish practices and distances Jesus from the customs of the Pharisees. It's essentially neutralizing Jesus' Jewishness. I mean, all these centuries later, we have no idea until academics point these things out to us. And so, unfortunately, as the church grew into the second century and beyond, the push against Judaism increased. For instance, when the Nicene Creed was written in 325, and I do have a slide for this just to give you context. I'm not going to read it, but just so you know what I'm talking about when I say the Nicene Creed. So when the Nicene Creed was written in 325, that same council that came up with this statement of faith was also intentional about decoupling Easter from Passover. Okay, so if you've ever wondered why they don't happen at the same time, even though we know from the Gospels that Jesus' last supper before going to the cross, we know that meal was a Passover meal. It was the Passover holiday. I often wondered this growing up, why these two things that are connected in our biblical account, and again, importantly connected, we learn and study about this, about why it was important for Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection to be aligned with the Passover. So then why have they been inextricably separated? We celebrate this, they celebrate that, because the Council of Nicaea in 325 was determined to separate Easter from Passover so there would be, to quote the records, nothing in common with the Jews. And we have documents from the 600s showing that Jews who wanted to become Christians had to wholly deny and reject Judaism using aggressive language that called the Jewish religion an error, even referring to their Jewish practices as superstitious vomit. I know it's hard. The consequences of turning away from the Jewish roots of this faith have been absolutely devastating, breeding horrific anti-Semitism in numerous countries, contributing to the Holocaust, as well as laying foundational ideology for white supremacy to flourish. Now, modern theologians have been doing work in this area for a few decades to bring light to the history and to help get conversations going. And as I was doing research for this sermon, I did notice that some newer translations and then revisions of other translations have, in fact, started to make the change to Tassel in Matthew 9. I was delighted to find one of them. I was like, oh, look at you. <laughs> you. know, So that's really great, right? There is hope for some restoration here. But unfortunately, the impact of the centuries can't be erased. So the lesson for us, I think, again, to quote Professor Rosner, she says really smart things. But she said, how we read our Bibles matters. How we read our Bibles matters. But, you know, I know I don't have to convince you all of that, right? You've seen the damage that can be done when the Bible is weaponized. You may have even lived it. You know the devastation that comes when Scripture is used with intention to justify human hatred, human abuse, human behavior. Jesus' own words get used against him and used to divide God's people, harming the ones whom God loves. And I know that, as I said in the beginning, you are a people. We are a people who desire reconciliation. We desire justice. We want to stand in the gap and declare that there is no us in them. We are all beloved children of God, no matter what. So obviously... There's a lot more that could be said about this. It was super hard to edit and stay on point this morning. So there's a lot more than I can even get to in this short sermon series. Um, But I'm really hoping that through this time together, we can begin to look with first century eyes at some of what Rabbi Jesus did and said, maybe even find some new reasons to follow him. And I'm hoping we can approach our Bibles with a renewed sense of curiosity and awe I think you'll be surprised by what we find when we dig into the Jewish context together. You know, Jesus is always thought of as an anti establishment hippie, right? <laughs> um, but when we read into the historical context, we'll have the opportunity to see and discover like an entirely new level of intention and a pretty surprising countercultural message that's there from Rabbi Jesus. So, next week, we'll be looking in greater detail at what made a person a rabbi, what kind of rabbi, Rabbi Jesus was. And then the following week, we'll be discussing what the rhythm of life was like for Jesus as a Jewish man living by the Jewish calendar. I'd like to wrap up this morning uh, just with Jesus' words from Matthew 16, 15, when he asks those who have chosen to follow him, us, who do you say I am? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. You are sovereign creator of all. And I want to thank you, Lord, for everything around us that reminds us of your greatness and your beauty. Lord, I pray that we would learn to soften our hearts. So that we can hear your voice. Help us to recognize the long, long story that you've been writing, that we are a part of. I pray, Lord, for this church community. We pray for compassion for one another. We pray for compassion for the figures of our past. We bring everything to your feet, Lord Jesus, and we ask, come Holy Spirit, fill us, move us, mold us. We love you, Lord, and we desire to know more of you, more about you. Thank you for this family. And we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.